Nobody gave a shit about reading David when he first came up. Anyone with half a brain, myself included, thought it was destined to fail spectacularly. But you got lucky. All you motherfuckers are gonna pay. You are the ones who are the ball lickers. We're, we're making a podcast. Please clap. And welcome back to Reboot Deboot. I'm your co-host, Griffin. Howdy, y'all. Alex, here too. <sighs> Alex, how you been, man? Uh, been good. Kind of, uh, slowing down a little bit, looking forward to Thanksgiving. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, are now... Is this a Thanksgiving or a Christmas tradition? But don't you celebrate Cold Table? Yeah, so that's like the name of the meal that happens, but we do do that on Thanksgiving usually. Nice. I have yet to attend one. Yeah, well, they've been a lot less crazy for the last few years, but yeah, they used to be wild. Why the tame down? Um... I think everyone I don't know if everyone can can hang as much honestly anymore. What do you, what do you mean? Well, isn't it just you and your family like you guys don't get crazy? Yeah, we used to though. Like before there be like our family's pretty tiny but we'd have like 20 people show up at these things. Um Oh shit. Okay. Yeah, that hasn't happened for a while. Now there's only three or four shots done during the meal. Oh, well, that's disappointing. I mean, if someone wants to, they can get really, really hammered. Oh, I mean, yeah, but it's not, you, it's different if an entire, like, it's different if, like, everyone is doing it as opposed to, like, the family lush is doing it, you know, or, like. Yeah. The guest is the lush. It's a little bit of a different vibe. It is a little different. Sometimes it'll be like, sometimes it'll be like two or three of the kids that got, have a little mission in mind. But <laughs> I try is there a goal? That, that fucking plastered these things anymore? Is there a goal? Right. I mean, like a yeah. Set, is there like like a set back? Yeah. Not really. It's just like randomly throughout the meal, if people want to toast, it gets toasted with that aquavit stuff. Dude, I wish I'm sad I never got an invitation. Well, we didn't start doing them until after we moved out of the state. Ah, bad timing. Yeah. Well, you, skull you to got? you, my Danish friend. Thank you. What do you What do you guys got going on? Uh, honestly, dude, like people have been sick and like. Everyone's just kind of keeping it low. COVID, the effects of like the 2020 pandemic have still uh, have still affected like supply chain stuff. So like we used to do really big dinners Mm -hmm. and uh, it's just been scaled down and everyone's living in their own houses now. And, you know, so we're just going to kind of have an informal open door to the family. You do anything fun with a turkey, like deep fried or something? Uh, 
No, 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 no. Um, Alicia Walsh, she is from Texas. She is not a Texan, if that makes sense. Uh, she doesn't adhere to any of the um, southern niceties that, or like the southern uh, stereotypes, I guess, that one would assume. I just heard that deep fried turkeys are super fucking tasty, so curious. I, I, I could too, but it, it, you'd have to get the oil and then store it someplace, yeah, and you have to have the surface picker. to fry it, and yeah, yeah so drop it into the <laughs> into the boiling right. boiling pool of death. Yeah. So yeah, we're just gonna do a, sta- a standard little turkey. We might not even do a turkey in lieu of something else, just because you know, like it seems like so much effort. Man, you're not a little disappointed here. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, I wanted to do the face hugger for Halloween. Oh right. Yeah. Um. But yeah, nothing. For Christmas, I have a few things lined up. But What's that thing? You yeah. do the thing where you put the turkey inside of a gar? That's a thing, right? What? <laughs> I think they do it on Malcolm in the Middle. Or is it a monk? <laughs> I'm unaware of that. But... It's like a turducken, but... I, don't know. I mean, there is gar out here. Like, Oh, God, that's funny. Um... Yeah. So Christmas is planned, but Thanksgiving, you know, I've always been kind of lukewarm on Thanksgiving anyway. Mm. Yeah. Like I enjoy the food, but everything else around it, all the trappings, just kind of like, nah, I get it. It's one of the more like draining holidays, especially when we were younger and we were doing the rounds of like going to Jorge's house and then going to your house and my house. And I'd go to Kristen's and then Dan's and like, Everybody's got their own thing, and you know, everyone's doing it. And inevitably, what the problem was with the bigger families is there'd always be like the stereotypical, like problematic family member, yeah, yep, you know, at least one. When uh, Uh, yeah, my biological dad was still alive, it was like half of his family were the problematic ones, and oof, too. Yeah, it's uh, luckily I never had to deal too much with the real problematic side of my family because um, I used to kind of give a wide berth to my biological father's side of things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's problematic to say the least. <laughs> like, yeah. They're problematic outside of the holidays. I can only imagine it's doubled on, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but this is nice. Uh, a bitch about your holiday family uh, podcast, Alex. Why don't you tell our audience, our hearers, uh, what we're going to be discussing today? Ooh, yeah, we got a lot. Um, <laughs> we started <laughs> with the Magnificent Seven from 1960 and from 2010, and then because we didn't record, we were like, "Well, let's throw Seven Samurai in there too." <laughs> uh, <laughs> So we also did that. Uh, yep. In 2016. Wait, what? Magnificent Seven from 2016. Oh, 26. Yeah, I misread that. 2016. Yeah. yeah. Um, Alex, what is your experience with Seven Samurai slash Magnificent Seven? I think that I watched the 1960s Magnificent Seven in film studies at Tracy High. 
But I'm not. No to- shit. I'm not totally sure because I didn't remember a lot of the movie, but also I didn't pay a lot of attention to that class. <laughs> this is not totally surprising. Um, <laughs> sure. Like I knew Seven Samurai was based on, or I knew The Magnificent Seven was based on Seven Samurai. I'm pretty sure that's because of that film studies class. Um, I remember when the remake came out, I was just not interested in it. I don't love Chris Pratt outside of Parks and Rec, really. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and Seven Samurai, I had never seen. I kind of vaguely knew about if, but I was like totally unaware of the content of the movie. And I think if I had seen it, I would have been able to flag like, well, this movie is almost four hours long. We should maybe do a separate thing for that. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, that's pretty much, I hadn't, I don't think I'd fully seen any of these. Uh, what about you? Uh, I never seen seven samurai. I had never seen the original magnificent seven. And I have seen the 2016 one. Huh, okay. Um, I guess I have to mention this full disclosure. Um, the reason why I've seen Magnificent Seven 2016 in the first place is because many, many years ago, I was actually in another show uh, and we covered the 2016 one irresponsibly looking back at that episode now compared to what you and I are doing and how we do the format now. Um, Because the original co-host and I, we never watched Seven Samurai or the original Magnificent Seven. We just judged Magnificent Seven as it was. Just more of like a straight review. Right. Where'd you guys land on that one? Um, At the time. At the time... I, it was overall, it's all right. It's okay. you, we said that it's like it's all right, but you weren't gonna get. I mean, I, I'll save it for this review now because now I've seen the Magnificent Seven and Seven Samurai. Um, okay. okay, so I guess do you want to start with Seven Samurai? I guess we should probably if we want to <laughs> do. I think normally we sort of go to the order they were made in, but just the way that I watched these was I watched seven, I watched Magnificent Seven, the original, yep. and then the 2016 one, like, two Sundays ago, and then I watched mm-hmm. Seven Samurai last Sunday. Um, but yeah, let's start with Seven Samurai. Epic. Uh, Kiro, Kurosawa. So, Jesus. Uh, Kurosawa movie. Um... I mean, look, it, it's Seven Samurai. It's regarded as one of the most important pieces of cinema ever created. Even having, before I saw the movie, I was aware of the importance of Seven Samurai. It's considered the first modern action movie. Uh, it's considered like the greatest foreign language film of all time. It, it's the story behind the shooting and the making and the filming uh, we could easily spend hours talking about the intricacies of how this film got made and the detail and uh, it's going to be so hard to cover um, it was made for 
$580,000 USD. Uh, in rentals, uh, in Japan, it made $2.3 million, and then in America, it made a further 800000 Nice. Good for them. Hell yeah. Um, it, Seven Samurai is probably the most remade, repurposed, repackaged film of all time. It it's, has so many different moving pieces. Uh, it has so many different um, character analogs and archetypes that parts of Seven Samurai have been split up into various other entire movies and genres, really. Uh, I'm, I'm finding myself struggling to even discuss it properly because it's it's Magnus in its scale of what it did and what it is. Yeah, it was a definitely a big movie. Uh, like like epic, kind of in the the traditional sense of the word. A lot going on. So, okay. I have some fun facts. Oh, we'll start with facts. I have some fun facts about this movie. Um, you, can find, uh, you can find the facts if you'd like to follow along or read more. You can find these on Wikipedia. Um, Akira Kurosawa's original idea for the film was to make it about the day in the life of a samurai, beginning with the samurai rising from bed, eating breakfast, going to his master's castle, and then ending with some mistake that required him to go home and commit suicide to save face. Ooh. Despite a good deal of research, he did not feel that he had enough solid factual information to make the movie. He then pitched the idea of a film that would cover a series of five samurai battles based on the lives of famous Japanese swordsmen. That idea was scrapped because it was a series of climaxes that wouldn't work. That's what the producer felt at the time. Um, no other Japanese director had done this before, as the samurai in the movie are actually based off real historical samurai. And each one of them had their own dossier. Uh, every character who had a speaking role had a dossier on the character, because all of these characters, samurai and people included, were then taken off of historical people from villages they found, or historical uh, people that were made of note. Oh, it had bad. their favorite food. It had their favorite foods, their past history, their speaking habits, details about what they wore, how much they enjoy barking like dogs that scared peasants. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was the first time it had ever been done. Uh, Kurosawa designed a registry of all 110 residents of the village, creating a family tree to help his extras build their characters and relationships with each other. Oh, that's cool. It was the first film on which Kurosawa used multiple cameras so he wouldn't interrupt the flow of scenes and could edit the film as he pleased in post-production. The camera work in this movie is super cool, too. Um, it took an entire year to film, and it was the most expensive film made in Japan. Many compared it to Westerns of the time, and it is the second highest grossing domestic film in Japan in 
Um, it is often credited as the first modern action movie, and many commonly now used cinematography and plot elements were designed and created and first used in Seven Samurai. Uh, the movie was set in 1586, and the uh, the samurai who is Kikyocho was born yeah. a year in two uh, of the Tensho era. Uh, he is now age 13, unlike in the West. Japanese convention considered a child to be age year one, the year of birth, versus one year old. Wait, sorry. Who's so thirteen it, in this? Like during the movie, he's supposed to be thirteen. No, no, no. The the, the character, uh, the the samurai um, who is not really a samurai who steals the family tree. Oh, yeah. And they're like, yeah. oh, if you were really at him, you'd be thirteen, oh, right? That actual right, right, kid. Right, right, right. Gotcha. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Because <laughs> okay, I've sort of forgotten about that part. Use for a second. Okay. Uh, Akira Kawazawa's ancestors were samurai, roughly up to 100 years before he made the film. Damn, okay. Uh, An often repeated myth is the production of this film in Godzilla nearly drove the studio into bankruptcy. Um, That's a myth. The studio released a total of 68 films that year, the most successful of which were Seven Samurai, Samurai Eye, and Godzilla. Um, it is three and a half hours or 207 minutes and is the longest picture of Akira Kurosawa's career filming had to be stopped several times due to a shortage of horses for the final <laughs> battle sequence <laughs> the first draft which was written by Shinobu Hashimoto was written freely as instructed by Kurosawa and would wound up to be 500 pages long. Jesus, that sounds about right. <laughs> Which the rule of the rule of script is one page is one minute. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. means that that thing would have been 500 minutes. Yeah, that's a. So we come in at a. So finding out that we come in at like a, a svelte 210 minutes after <laughs> that is a, pretty solid, actually. Well, originally, the studio cut 50 minutes off the film when screening, oh, when screening it for American distributors for fear that no American audience would be willing to sit through the entire picture. It was close at times. I definitely had to take, get up and take walks. <laughs> and I think this is the first movie we've watched that had an actual intermission baked into it, right? It had a legit intermission, just yeah, like, like right in the middle. Pops up, there's some fun music. There's intermission. I got up and went and got a <laughs> snack. I was like, this rules. Every, even, even... 90 minute movie should have this <laughs> yeah like it's an actual intermission like and the intermission hit and i paused it thinking well it's gonna be like a two minute intermission no it's like a 15 minute intermission it's like yeah, a it's real intermission in there uh, <laughs> i was like okay i think the only other like movie that i've seen with an intermission it wasn't really a movie it was grindhouse right which has like a double yeah. feature and then there's an intermission double feature there. yeah uh, yeah. This is the first one I've seen that had a little like, let's all go to the lobby, uh, break in the middle. So, uh, Akira Kosawa, Shinobi Oshimito, uh, Hashimito, and Hideo Oguni, and I know I butchered those names and I deeply apologize. I know these gentlemen deserve an amazing amount of respect, and me slaughtering their 
names is not doing them any favors, and I greatly apologize for that. Uh, they wrote the final script over 45 days. They took no calls or visitors, with few exceptions. The constant writing took a toll on their bodies, and sickness was rampant. Uh, Kurosawa wound up in the hospital with roundworms. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we've heard of any directors getting parasites yet. That's pretty funny. <laughs> no. Um, initially, the studio pulled the plug on the project several times because it ran over budget, and Kurosawa was then forced to go back and personally argue with the board of directors because the studio was convinced that this was going to be a flop. When asked to describe the kind of film he was making, Kawazero responded, a movie as rich and buttered, steak topped with grilled eel. <laughs> okay, cool. When it opened, it was the most expensive Japanese film ever. The favorite film of filmmaker and Star Wars creator George Lucas. Mm. Um, an episode of Star Wars, The Clone Wars, Bounty Hunters 2010, was even based on this film and was dedicated to Kurosawa. An alien introduced in the episode, Amiibo, or Imabo, uh, had his species named Kuyazo after his film Swordmaster, played by Seji Miyagachi. Uh, though creative freedom uh, provided the studio, uh, Kurosawa made use of telephoto lenses, which were rare in 1954. Now, there are a thousand more facts on this you can find on Wikipedia. Um, I'm trying to not turn this into a two and a half hour thing on just Seven Samurai. So I will leave it with the samurai armor that was used on the film was actual real samurai armor. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, let's have all those bandits stolen. Sick. Yeah. Um, Alex, how did you feel watching Seven Samurai? Did, are you aware of like the late were you, before you saw the movie? Were you aware of like the the legacy that this thing had created or? Were you, like, did you know the length or anything? What was your like pre pre game strategy for Seven Samurai? What was your knowledge? Um, I mean, I knew that it's like a super important movie. And you've talked about a lot, like milestone in cinema history. I kind of was aware of that. Uh, like, I know the name of Kira Kurosawa. I don't think I've. I don't know if I've seen any other of his movies. We saw Godzilla. Oh, yeah. I guess if that was him, then yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, so I didn't... I kind of just went into it blank. I, obviously, I had watched both of the Magnificent Seven movies at this point, so I like had a decent idea of what I thought the story was going to be. And it pretty much was. But there's a lot more like classic kind of drama stuff happening. Like the first fifteen minutes with the, there's so many scenes where it's just like these poor fucking villagers wailing, uh, <laughs> after being abused. <laughs> it's really depressing at times. Um, I don't know. Should we talk like sort of lightly about the events? They're all kind of the same across these three, but like slightly different. I'm, well, I mean, yeah. So for. Seven Samurai, Magnificent Seven, and then the remake. Uh, just roughly, what is the plot? So, in all three of them, well, 
and the Magnificent Seven and Seven Samurai, the the OG MS and Seven Samurai. There's a, like uh, there's a village of farmers that are being abused by bandits who are gonna like they show up in the beginning and then they tell them they kind of harass a bunch of people and they tell them they're gonna come back later for their crops when when everything's ripe. Uh, in the Magnificent Seven remake. Kind of a vaguely similar setup, except for instead of farmers, they're like there's a mine town, and this guy hires a bunch of Pinkertons, and they're killing off these like hardworking, normal villagers who aren't part of the mine. Uh, and then some of the villagers go into a large town nearby to look for help, either cowboys or samurai, depending on if the movie came out in the West or Japan <laughs> or the East. Yeah, and then. They end up, they find like one dude who is sort of into their cause because the, the villagers have basically, like, in Seven Samurai, it's even more drastic. They can only offer rice. Like in The Magnificent Seven, I think the director was probably like, no American's going to believe <laughs> that these people just came here for food. Uh, so, like, there they have a, like, it's a small amount of money, basically, and like a bunch of family heirlooms they're selling and stuff. And they do get meals too when they show up there. Um, but they do that, and then either the seven, um, they end up recruiting a cool eclectic gang of either seven samurai or seven cowboys that all have like kind of their own personality thing going on. And they spend some time training the villagers, uh, like forming a little little villager militia, getting them trained up. And then they uh, they sort of have like a, not a siege. What's the opposite of a siege? I don't know. They dig in in their town, they fortify it, and then they have a standoff with the with the bandits towards the end. Um, and then some of our some of our fun characters die during the fight in various ways. And then uh, I don't know. Then they end up liberated, and three three cowboys or samurai kind of walk out to go do their own thing. That about it, I think. That's about it. It was vague enough to apply to all three of them. Yeah, no, it, it, it really is. Um, so, Seven Samurai, you've never seen it. You sat down. What did you think when you saw the three, the three and a half hour timestamp? Um, well, we've talked about it before. I think, <clears throat> I think most movies are a little longer than they need to be. Anyway, I did this one though. It started moving pretty quickly, like. It took a while, but it didn't feel like super long. It just felt like there were a lot of parts to it, I guess. I don't know. I didn't really feel the runtime on this one. It was nice. Um, I can agree. I, I so I'm I sat down and I found Seven Samurai on the Internet Archive. Mm-hmm. I'm like, thank you, Internet Archive. Doing the Lord's work. Um so I, I see the three and a half hours and I'm like, I knew it was long, but it can't be three and a half hours long. Clearly, that's got to be a mistake. No, it was not a mistake. It's only like 3.20 if you count the intermission time. (laughs) So I... So I I start watching this, and I started thinking about what you said. Like, there's a a movie nowadays has to have a lot of... You have to have a reason for it to be longer than an hour and a half. Like, why? Or you have to be a tour director who people just, like, let you do that because they think you're (laughs) a la Joys of the Flower Moon or fucking a... Right, Scorsese and Nolan. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
I was about halfway through this movie when the intermission hit. I'm thinking to myself, is like, does this movie need to be this long? And then when I finished it, I found myself like trying to think of what scenes could I cut out. And I stumbled across the answer, like none. Like it's three and a half hours, but to tell the full story, to develop the movie in the, such a way, trimming anything out would feel like a disservice to the whole project. Yeah, there's a, like a lot of, I mean, there's prob- there probably is stuff you could like get rid of or whatever, but a lot of it is really just helps you <laughs> understand just like how deeply fucked up the situation is for these farmers. And a lot of the scenes and, and like with the, the samurai too, almost. Yeah, getting to know all the samurai is pretty well. The ones you do is pretty fun. Um, like it, it really shows uh, the scale of this movie and all of the set pieces and all of the attitudes and the motivations. Um, yeah, I like. <sighs> I like seeing yeah, all the I, all the scenes and setups too that they sort of like directly lifted from Seven Samurai and put into the Magnificent Seven. Sure. <clears throat> like, uh, I mean, I, I I know where Thirteen Assassins came from. Now you know. Yeah, there were so many. That was the thing I thought of too. Watching this one, like especially when uh, when God, what's his fucking kid, kid shit. Kachio. Yeah. Also, I didn't know that like that kind of cool badass samurai existed in the fifties as like a pop culture thing. But that dude with the big old fuck off sword, who's always carrying it on his yeah, shoulder. That, that's him. That's the yeah. same guy. He, yeah. There's so many. He looks so cool <laughs> in profile every time he's shot like that. I couldn't get it. He finds a new inventive way to hold his big sword. Like almost every other scene, it's great. The yeah, it's. And I guess, like, in pop culture in the 50s, this stuff was already happening in, in Japan cinema. Like, in Japan cinema, they were using that. Like, we were using the Western since the 30s. Like, the cool idea of the gunslinger was happening in Japan, but it wasn't gunslingers. They were samurai. They were swordsmen. Yeah, it's, and it's I think kind of... Sorry, boggles my mind a little bit when I find out these things that feel, like, pretty modern are actually very old. It's where a lot of like the stereotypes come from, right? And because uh, Josh popped in for pieces of this movie as I'm watching it, because uh, I started watching it at two thirty in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. That's what I. Did. So like, jo- yeah. so like Josh and Alicia came downstairs every now and then, like this is still on, and then they would go back upstairs, <laughs> or like Josh would come down for an hour, he'd leave, and he came back another hour, and he's like, "How are you watching? I came in, you were halfway through." How is there more? <laughs> There's more. But more uh, scenes of uh, peasants crying. <laughs> Did you get the dub or a sub? Did you do subtitles? Uh, du- uh, dub w- or subtitles? I watched it with subtitles. Okay, I watched it with subtitles too. Um, I understand where that stereotypical Asian accent comes from. That comes from the 1960s and 70s when we had American actors dubbing over Japanese film and those were the accents they were, that's where that hyper offensive, hyper, hyper stereotypical accent comes from Mm. or like the the generation after the fifties, 
like the sixties and seventies, like Bruce Lee films and shit like that with the bad act, like the bad American act voice actors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you can see a lot of like oh, samurai movies and westerns, and we'll get to this when we talk a little bit more about Magnificent Seven. They kind of go hand in hand because they share a lot of the same themes and the same central motives. It's usually like a lone gunslinger or a ronin. Uh, they're on a quest for vengeance or redemption or like peace of mind or honor. There are. Uh, people in uh, misrepresented marginal societies or groups of people being oppressed by some larger, uh, like, rich force. And it's the smaller army versus the larger force with the smaller army winning, which is what Seven Samurai absolutely is. It's an understaffed, underfed, underweaponed, undermanned unit of men beating the larger... Yeah, on like, paper, better force. Well, not better. I don't think. I don't even think on paper better. It's like that thing in Three Hundred where they're walking up the stairs or whatever, and they all those Greeks show up, and they're like, "How many soldiers?" You <laughs> sure. Have, yeah. You know, but these are like seven dudes who this is like <laughs> this is all they do. Um, the Thirteen Assassins, they're like them fortifying the village, and then. Uh, the dude sticking all those swords in the pile. Like, I thought that was cool. Yeah. Captain Assassin was like, oh, fuck. This is like a 70, 70 years yeah. older than I thought it was. <laughs> um, well, 20, right? Because the oh, original 13 Assassins came from the 70s. Yeah. But yeah, yeah it's the same. So. Like, I saw that. I'm like, oh, shit. This is like 13. Like, the entire siege, which is an hour long, by the way. Yeah. That entire siege. It does. It feels good. It looks cool. But them turning the town into a trap, I'm like, oh, this is this is 13 assassins. This yeah. is abs- This entire movie, this entire hour is just 13 assassins. Like the motivations, the lead up to that point is a little, a little different. But yeah, it's the same kind of. I think there are way more dudes attacking in 13 assassins. But I also love too in this where they would go back to. They kept on going back to. Uh, oh God. Cambay, like the leader dude, kind of like hitting all the sure. tick boxes. He had that big piece of paper where they knew there were 40 dudes. That, or I think they knew there were like oh, yeah. 20, 37 dudes they had they... to kill. And they like hand marked <laughs> each one, which is nice. <laughs> like, there are some amazing. Okay, so before we even get into the fight scene, um, the recruitment of the samurai and showing like how they were recruited. I thought, okay, we're going to have like an hour and a half of getting to deeply, intimately know these samurai, and they're going to connect with this village. It didn't really do that. No, there's still like two or three of these guys I couldn't tell you a damn thing about. Like, I know one of them is good with a bow because they showed him using it twice, but then he like dies off screen. Um. Yeah, it's interesting because... You think about what the movie is, and you think about what it's about, and you think about how long it is... And reason would tell you, okay, it has to be, we're going to have to know all these people to get connected to the village. But it does that from like a bird in the sky perspective almost. It's showing like an overview of everything that's happening. So you get a larger picture of like the village, the people, the samurai, instead of like here are individual people. So you only care about a few characters. It gets you caring about the entire event. I was, yeah, I was kind of expecting the more like, you know, if one of these movies was made now and this happens a lot more in the 2016 magnificent seven one but there'd be like 
because everyone would be so famous, they'd each need to have like their 10 to 15 minutes, like get to know you a bit before they sure. fade into the group. They really yeah. don't do that too much here. They do it a little bit. Like, and in the scenes where they do do it, if they almost lifted, they lifted like half of the intro scenes just directly for the Magnificent Seven. So like they, <laughs> there's that yeah. dude who's chopping wood that they find. He's like yep. chopping wood. It's also funny how much of the stuff translates directly from 15... 80s japan yeah night to like 1950s america <laughs> it's like the chopping wood to pay for a meal because you can't otherwise and they have that dual scene where the dude keeps on taking naps in between it's just <laughs> both <laughs> um, of those scenes were fucking cool by the way like yeah and those two they were they were <laughs> so good so good um i like um, the, i like the intro of like the younger well, I guess he that character kind of is sure. the '60s one, and there he's just like a green. He's just kind of like a green cowboy. But in this one, having the duty wants to be the attendant of uh, Kambe just because he thinks like Kambe is such a good dude. And then him being like sort of like schoolboy infatuated with that badass samurai who like the one who runs into Who's... the camp to steal yeah. the musket and stuff. <laughs> the, yeah. du- the duelist guy who's just like murder machine. <laughs> just without any problems either like yeah he's very cool there's a lot of uh, a lot of cool sort of like samurai archetypes in here or character archetypes <laughs> that you see in a lot of like anime and stuff now where like sorry kid nothing personal <laughs> like a lot of that kind of yeah stuff. like the, a like, lot of like yeah a, a lot of like the cool lone wolf character you can find them all in Seven Samurai. There's seven different flavors of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's seven. Yeah, there's, well, there's, there's six like different six flavors, flavors of plus like a, a young kid who's just sort of there. They are the biggest badasses who have ever badassed, but they don't need to brag about it. Yeah, except for uh, except for Kichiro a little bit. <laughs> he's, but he's got, got the chip he... on his shoulder and something to prove. But also, like, his bombastic disc, it grows on you. At first, he's a little off-putting. He still looks very cool the entire time. I love how he keeps, like, he he keeps upgrading his armor as the movie goes on. Yeah, oh, God. The last, like, you see so many butts at the end of this movie. There's so many dudes that are just in, like, the top armor and then the, I think it's called a dashi. Uh, But, like, the little, like, the... Japanese underwear that's kind of just like a cloth in the front and then yeah like, <laughs> the thong kind of thing uh, a lot of muddy butts not like because they fell in mud not because they shit themselves right and yeah. like even 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 like Seven Samurai even brings the idea of like the wizened old like wise man yeah the old the old villager guy that they in the he refuses to leave his mill and the last shot you see of him is that fucking beautiful black and white shot where he's just like it's just his shadow and he's sitting down with his bamboo staff and like it's such a crisp outline of silhouette like fuck that's so cool it just looks so good there are a number of really cool shots in this i also like too it happens like once or twice and becomes a big like samurai movie staple later but where the camera is just like panning left to right as uh like looking at a wall with some windows from the outside as a dude like walks parallel to the camera and like murders yeah. people walking through a building kicks him out of fucking it's such a dynamic <laughs> scene and then like for the and then, you know it's like the 50s like fuck this is yeah stuff that it's feels 19... super modern but like doing this like 
crazy dynamic action scene with like really cool shot blocking and stuff. It's 1954 and like it feels fresh and contemporary, which is very hard for a movie for the 50s to do. Yeah. Yeah. Like the the entire, like the siege, when you actually get into the siege, it's like these are not the quick cuts of the 80s. These are not like the like wire fighting Japanese movies that we're seeing of like the Bruce Lee era of these are like epic long standing solid camera shots of like we're gonna show like ten people on screen, we're gonna do a wide like a wide angle high shot and we're just gonna watch this fight play out. Yeah. The fight choreography is like not <laughs> super amazing by today's standards. It's still pretty cool, but it's like the thing like in the the original 13 assassins we watched we talked a little bit about how like it just kind of like swing pretty wildly and it doesn't um sometimes it doesn't always look like like super disciplined sword play that we might see in like a kill bill or something or you know right but again this is also like all out war right yeah yeah like there's lots it's lots of not designed to like sort of wildly swing at dudes on horses and stuff the scenes where the yeah. every time a peasant, like a mob of the farmers with the bamboo spears, <laughs> stabs someone oh, to death after yeah, ripping them off a horse, no. you see it like eight times. There's that yeah. one guy who's like running through the fence, and they just stab him through the fence, and they fall on him, like yeah. with their garden like implements. I'm like, Jesus Christ! There's a few of those. It's real, like, it is brutal. It's weird to say that about a movie that came out in the 50s, because we're not used to seeing that kind of violence, but, like, if you're seeing, that, if this was in color, like, if there's a colorized version of Seven Samurai, it would look like a Quentin Tarantino movie with all the blood. They'd have to. Like, they're not doing, like, wild, crazy blood sprays, but, like, there's so much violence in it that, like... Of Some of the samurai would just be covered in... Yeah, <laughs> it would absolutely just be covered in blood. Yeah, yeah, you kind of... You only see it, like, once or twice when people have, like, mortal wounds and stuff in this. Um, yeah, they would... Man, they, also, like, the stakes in this are just so... Because we spent, like, two hours just watching that poor group of farmers, like, just... Until the samurai finally show up in their village... <laughs> Their their lead up to that is just so brutal for like being victimized the first time, and then when those three or like four dudes like go to the city to try and find samurai and they only have rice to trade and then their rice gets stolen. There's that fucking farmer who's just got like a permanent. It looks like he's like frightened and frowning the whole time. It's almost he almost looks like the path the pathos mask, um, from like you know the smiling and frowning mask. Yeah. And then the shadow yeah. interplay really makes them like look exaggerated. I think it was, it made me think of, there's like the Japanese tradition too, where they have the masks for certain emotions. It looked like one of those uh, a lot of the time. And, and like, they're staying in that, like that flop house or whatever, and there's that gang of little assholes. Oh yeah, let's keep on fucking with them. <laughs> and there's yeah. like that other, there's that one guy who tries to be a samurai and he stands up and they just fucking bully him into like submission again. It's like, fuck, man, like, we're, we're like, it really, for two hours, we watched these poor villagers realize that, fuck, this, this gang of bandits are going to come back. Their barley's going to get stolen. They're, like, contemplating mass suicide in the beginning of the movie just to get some sort <laughs> yeah. of authority to respond. 
is wild. And then there's this whole subplot with a this farmer Manzo. I think that's the farmer it was, and his daughter. Oh, and his daughter. Shino. Okay, Shino. that um, that connection towards the end. I was genuinely shocked. Like yeah. I had a genuine. So there's a moment when. So, okay, so they hide their women from the samurai coming in, right? Like, they hide the women because they don't know what the samurai are going to do. They're untrustworthy. They're unsure. And uh, Manzo cuts his daughter, like, forcibly cuts his daughter's hair to make her look like a boy. Yeah, to make her really, look less feminine, right? It's a really unpleasant scene to watch. It is. Like, it is. It really is. Lots of screaming and crying. No one's happy. Especially because he's chasing her with, like, a straight razor. Yeah, and this dude has also been like pretty unhinged the entire time. He's like cracked up a little early. Like um, I use a straight razor to shave. I I know what I I know I know, and it made me nervous. I'm like I yeah. just don't like don't use a straight razor, man. You're gonna end up killing her accidentally, which I honestly thought was gonna happen. Like I really I really thought that was coming, but it doesn't. But there's. There's a scene later where uh, his daughter ends up hooking up with the young would-be samurai, mm -hmm. and Monzo finds out. And that moment when he's like, she's a tramp, she's a slut, and he hits her, I'm like, what? From 1954? Like, what? I could not believe that I saw that. Because the Japanese are, you know, honor, and I get that it's a huge moment of, like, you know, respect your elders, like, you, you treat people with respect and dignity, and just to outright have, like, a father call his daughter a slut and then strike her, seeing it now in, like, 20-whatever, I'm like, yeah, just a shitty father, but seeing it in the frame of, like, a 1954 movie, and then this is supposed to be, like, feudal Japan, and it's like, fuck, I was not expecting that moment. I don't like, too, the kind of, or... It's the one cuss word they throw in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. There might be some stuff that maybe didn't... <laughs> maybe the subtitles uh, softened sure. or something. But yeah, that part's super jarring. Um, I do like that they're able to get him to calm down a little bit. But I like there's a there's this whole thing. So Shino is... She's like sort of interested in the young like samurai in this one the young buck it was yeah. pretty interesting like she drove the whole relationship kind of not even relationship like she drove the uh <clears throat> she's like the one who initiates like the intercourse and everything like yeah and most of the interactions every time i just thought that was really interesting and then instead of like this cowboy or samurai or whatever like sleeping with a young woman and then like blowing her off to leave she just like won't acknowledge him afterwards and not in like a, because I'm ashamed it, like way. The, like he, she just like goes back to her village life at the end. And like, yeah, I, I and this is all taken from history too. Mm. Like this is a story of uh, in history, Kurosawa discovered a story of samurai defending farmers. Like cool. so he yeah. he did. Kurosawa did his best to dissect that story into what we got to see. And it's, I mean, it's a fantastic film. Like, I, I know saying that doesn't, who the fuck am I? Of course it's a fantastic film, but it really is impressive. Yeah, there's probably, like, there's some very good think pieces out there that'll do 
a more eloquent job of describing it, but just overall, yeah, it was like fantastic the whole time. But I highly there are anyone who's curious. Yeah, like it, it, it is long, but give your like take a Saturday, start it like at noon or like one, and then just write it out. Because honestly, it is something to be seen. There aren't many movies that I say that about, but it is definitely something to watch. If you start at like 10, you hit the intermission right around lunchtime, you can go grab a snack, come back, finish the second half of the movie. Sure. Like, if there's a Mount Rushmore of film, this has got to be up there. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so much. You can see so many movies today that you can go back and go, oh, well, they were doing that in the 60s and they were doing that in the 50s. Yeah, one movie was doing that in the 50s. Like, one movie in particular was doing that from the 50s. Like, one movie had the foresight to stay fresh and relevant. It doesn't seem like it's aged poorly. It doesn't seem like... It doesn't... Like, there are so many pluses. Like, it helps that it's set in a feudal Japan. Uh, like, feudal Japan. So it doesn't look dated uh it helps that it's a universal story that everyone can relate to of like okay well i'm gonna be a good person and help the like the underdog or i'm gonna see the underdog fight everyone loves an underdog story uh you get the like the personal connection of like um maybe these people aren't so sure of themselves well who are these guys coming into this village these people don't have much and then you know find out they have a stockhold of food that they're holding out on and because one of the samurai actually was a villager and we see that onion and it's like everything was so thought out and so perfect i get it i totally get why you like your body would go to shit after trying to write this yeah, that's a big one. Um, how did you feel after it ended? Um, I don't. I wasn't like super impacted by too many of the deaths or anything, except for I did. So one of my favorite things in the Magnificent Seven was that gang of kids that adopts fucking a Charles, Charles Bronson. Yeah, <laughs> and I like that they. Well, I was gonna say kept, not really kept. I like that that's one of the things that's in this one too. Is like those little, those little kids, um, that are like hanging out around Kachiro, and that he, like, this dude's like super off-putting most of the time, but he like kind of, he's good with these kids. <laughs> he gets into laugh right. and stuff, and they all really like him. Uh, so, <clears throat> like them, oh, I guess they don't show in this one, but uh. Like the kids being bummed about him, I was, you know, but otherwise, I just thought, like, damn, this was a really good movie. Uh, when it ended, thought it was, I thought it was great, and that line about how the samurai still lost, and really the victory is only yeah. for the farmers was pretty cool. It's true too. Yeah, and like saying that, like as the little, as like the younger samurai is like all forlorn and watching his like lady interest just go back to being a regular just go back to farming and like giving him the cold shoulder and they yeah like this this victory belongs right to the off. peasants not to us yeah yeah the uh like because they did lose a number like the village lost a number of its people 
Yeah. And there is damage, like, there is damage done to homes and the mill. Like, the mill is burned. They flooded one of their fields. It's going to take a while for that field to become usable again, right? Uh, well, there, and, and then on top of that, like... The fields are built so they can be flooded, I think. If it was a rice bag, but they couldn't use it right away. Yeah, I mean, next season will be fine. But yeah, they're right. like everyone's sacrificing stuff here. Everyone is sacrificed. Everyone, it does. Yeah, it, it feels like it is a ha- it is a hollow victory. It's like we won, but at what cost? Yeah. Well, you know, the farmers get to keep on doing their thing. That's nice. Um. And then Kambe and his little uh, steward can go have fun adventures or something. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh... I, I... And I, I know the cast of Seven Samurai. Um, I don't... Sadly, I don't know anything about their other works or their other uh, ventures or even how famous they were standing in cinema at the time um i don't feel it is my place to speak on that because i'm so unfamiliar with this movie so i I would recommend if you guys are really interested go watch seven samurai but then find someone who is versed in japanese cinema to discuss like go find a podcast specifically about seven samurai or go find like a deep dive into this film because I feel like I haven't done a good enough job giving it the accolades it is it deserves. Oh, this definitely made me want to go and check out some uh, some more samurai movies. Maybe just some more Kurosawa stuff. Seeing that uh, this Toshiro Mifune guy, who is Kuchio, um, he plays Yojimbo in fucking Yojimbo. So I think I'm going to check that out. I mean, I must say, a lot of my experience with Japanese movies, it comes from the Bruce Lee era. It comes from, like, Lone Wolf and Cub, uh, Game of Death, Enter the Dragon. Uh, It's that 60s, 70s kung fu karate movies. Um, Samurai stuff from the 50s and earlier, I am severely lacking in. So... I haven't watched a ton, but I have played all of Ghost of Tsushima, and they do have, once you beat the game, you can turn on this thing called the Kurosawa filter that makes it all black and white and film grainy. (laughs) That's awesome. That's so cool. Is it really called the Kurosawa filter? Yeah. Oh, it's called Kurosawa mode (laughs) if you turn it on. (laughs) That's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. Oh man. Um such cool scenes. Even just like see like cool scenes of like just the rolling hill of flowers. Even in black and white, I'm like, man, this looks magical. Yeah, like there is something about the way that it is filmed. Like every shot, it's almost like uh, Kubrick, right? Like every every shot could be a painting. Mm. Like everything is every frame of painting. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, but like Stanley Kubrick lined up his stuff like every frame could be its own individual painting. Like every he had everything meticulously lined out and framed up, like because that's just part of his craft. Aside from being a fucking psychopath and abusing his crew, you know. Um, but Seven Samurai, every shot, I'm like, this looks re-, like it either looks really cool or really pretty. 
Yeah. Yeah. Or like, so, yeah, it's a really cool, the, just the sort of lingering shot of the four, like samurai grave above all of the graves of the farmers oh. who had died at the end. Was like, and like the farmers have like little, like uh, they have their hats on it and stuff, but the samurai have the specific weapon they were using. Yeah. You can see the giant like, sword in Kajira's grave. It was very cool. It was great. Yeah, I think yeah, if you're into like, samurai shit at all, probably go to yourself to check this out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I, I wish we could just continue talking about it, but we got two other films to cover. You know, I'm like yeah, clock's ticking. They're both two. They're both two hours. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, at least the events of all three have been covered. <laughs> but Seven Samurai. Uh, I, it, it's a classic. It, it's got to be up there on the Mount Rushmore of cinema. Um, go check out Seven Samurai uh, and then do some research on your own because it deserves that much. And I wish I had done more leading up to it um, just to f- feel like I did a good enough job to talk about it properly. And I, uh, I, I kind of let myself down on that one. But it is amazing and fantastic. Yeah. Check it out. So that's 1954, and moving on, we go to October 12th, 1960, on a budget of $2 million and a box office return of $9 million, uh, in rentals, which, again, I don't know what the fuck that means. I don't know why rentals are being called box office, but <laughs> um, we have the Seven Samurai transformed in the Wild West to the Magnificent Seven. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got an all-star cast of American icons now. Uh, we've got James Coburn. We've got Yul Brenner, Steve McQueen, Robert Vaughn, Brad Dexter, Charles Bronson, and Horst Bjor- uh, Bolts Bjorks. That German guy playing someone named Chico. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and the uh, foil for them is the uh, great Eli Wallach who is Tuco in Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Those oh, yeah. And he's Calvera here. He's really... I think this is a cool change, having the uh, the main antagonist have a little bit more personality to him than... Sure. In Seven Samurai. Um, now, I can talk a little more about the actors in this because I'm more familiar with them than I am with the Seven Samurai cast, which, again, that's I feel like those guys were... Famous. I feel like they were famous and well-known and respected. I just feel that in my gut. We got a uh, bit this, of a greatest I know reunion happening here. Yeah, <laughs> with a few of the cast. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like three of them, right? Three or four, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so this is another Steve McQueen movie for you. Yeah, and i just loving them more and more every time I watch one. I totally okay, so get the king of cool thing, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so Steve McQueen, nineteen sixty. Uh, overall, this Magnificent Seven. How, did you like it? Had you like seen it before? What was your experience? I hadn't seen it before. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic this time around. I think I really like westerns from this era because I think when did I really like that True Grit? Uh, the old that one same time, roughly same time, yeah. Yeah, so, and then this one was just, like, so many cool actors that 
It was just, it was like a very fun movie, even when things were like a bit of a bummer. It stayed like super fun and pretty light a lot of the time. Sure. Uh, except for with like Lee's PTSD. No. Uh, but yeah, I thought it was great. I loved the intro of uh, Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen. Just got like yeah. the intro where they're in this town and there's a bunch of like dipshit townies who don't want that black guy to be buried in their graveyard uh, and it's i was like okay immediately i love like the pov of this movie where like they're portrayed as like racist backwater dipshits the villagers yeah. and steve like steve mcqueen and yul brenner are both like they don't know each other yet but they they get that hearse steve mcqueen rides shotgun on the coach doing the actual shotgun thing uh, and it just starts with these two, like, being pals, doing a nice thing, uh, and thwarting a bunch of racist idiots. It's just such a fun intro. And then it keeps on getting fun. Now, is it fair to compare this to Seven Samurai? I I don't think they make a good, like, one-to-one comparison. I think it's fun to, like, treat this as kind of its own thing, but then look, like, but then you can, like, appreciate the or homage or like direct sort of like scenes that have been lifted. I don't sure. So I'm really... like, this is it. Like it, okay. it's odd because yeah, go. It's not quite. It's like, it's not quite the same as like, a got infernal affairs and uh, departed. departed. Like those are like, that's like way more one-to-one. I don't, this one is like, the tone is a lot lighter. The movie's shorter by a lot. Um, they're like the seven samurai or the seven cowboys are all kind of like a little goofy at least and having a good time. They have mostly, there's a, a bit of like the villagers being tormented, but they've mostly removed the like long drawn out scenes of like wailing and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> sure. And it's, you know, it's all like a Western aesthetic instead of samurai stuff. And, because it doesn't, yeah, I know it doesn't really feel like a remake. It just feels like a like heavily inspired by kind of thing or something. I don't know. Well, and like this is the thing, right? Um, Magnificent Seven is a remake. Uh, it's it's a remake with an updated like Western vibe. We're going away from 1574 Japan to 1860s West, like Mexico, Wild West. Um, we are going away from Japan to American cinema, uh, but the plot is the exact same. Yeah, yeah, it's the same setup. The dispossessed like farmers need some help. They go to the big city to hire some some men to help. So we've got Yul Brenner uh, as a Cajun gunslinger who is the de facto leader. That cracked me up so hard when I think it's Steve McQueen is like, you crazy old Cajun. I was like, is that how they're explaining this accent? This is hilarious. (laughs) Do you know much about Yul Brenner? Are you familiar with him? Is he like a, well, I know he's Russian actor, like came over here. I don't know. He's like kind of like a Cold War success story kind of thing. Like, yeah, yeah. Did a lot of acting, uh, Cajun. Um, he was Ramses in the Ten Commandments. Mm. Like, did a lot of acting, did stage acting, did theater acting, did film acting. Super famous, hyper famous. Uh, died in, uh, when did he die? I think he died in, like, 85 or 86. 
Um, and when he did, he had a series of strange commercials come out after his death. And it was him smoking. And it was like him sitting down and he's like, hi, I'm Yul Brenner, and I'm dead now from smoking. <laughs> and then it was, it was like an anti-smoking act. Yeah, it was really strange. Um, it was super weird. Uh, so this is the first time I'd ever seen uh, a Yul Brenner film, um, like, with my current mindset. I'm sure I saw, like, Ten Commandments years ago, but I couldn't fully appreciate it or didn't get it. So this is the first, like, time I can fully internalize, like, Yul Brenner's acting in his force. And, dude, if there's one guy to give Steve McQueen a running for the title of King of Cool, it's Yul Brenner. Yeah, he's pretty awesome in that. <laughs> he's pretty fucking awesome. Steve McQueen is like really understated in this and in a lot of his movies, which I appreciate. He's not like an action star nowadays who would want to. Um, Chris Pratt is a poor imitation of this. <laughs> it re- yeah, it really is. Like, like again, I don't know why, but there's just something about Steve McQueen's. Char- it's his charisma. He, he, he is just ice cool. He's cool, and like, he doesn't, like, he's not a dick about it. You know, he doesn't, like, rub it in your no. face how cool he is. <laughs> no, he just... Like, even in this movie, he kind of fades into the background a lot, or he's, like, really understated, or he'll just, like, have a little, like, a fun little comment to drop in at the very end, like, right before his like transition he, happens. It's like he goes, yeah, I'm Steve McQueen. We both know it. Moving on. Yeah, well, he's, he's like the first like, thing that joins up with Yul Brenner, and then he just kind of like, and then he's like Yul Brenner's just like right hand man throughout the whole thing in a fun way. So he's like, it's weird having the sidekick be as cool as it's like if Robin was as cool as Batman. It's a weird dynamic. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, uh, Yul Brenner had a major say in the casting decisions, and he decided to cast Steve McQueen as Ven Tanner. Oh, yeah. yeah. He later regretted the move since he and McQueen developed a disastrous relationship on set. Oh, like they weren't pals? That sucks. They were not pals. Um, James Coburn was a fan of Seven Samurai, and his favorite role in the film was the character that ended up playing the Americanized version of himself. Oh, yeah, because he's the duelist in this so, one. Like, Yeah, he, so he, he... He starts with that that dueling scene and he takes <laughs> naps in between murdering people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in 1980, Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen were reconciled because McQueen was dying of cancer. Mm, uh, okay. He called Brenner to thank him and Brenner asked what for and he said, you, uh, you could have had me kicked off that movie when I rattled you, but yeah. you let me stay and made the picture uh, and that's the picture that made me, so thanks. And Brenner told him, I'm the king, and you are the rebel prince. Every bit is royal and dangerous to cross. <laughs> That's such a weird thing to say to someone. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. That's... McQueen would finish it saying, I had to make it up with Yule, because without him, I wouldn't have been in the picture. It's a little overwrought, but cool. Good for them. Glad they <laughs> Dude, if Yule Brenner, if someone as cool and as established as Yule Brenner ever told me, I am the king and you are the rebel prince. Everybody is royal but dangerous to cross. I'd be like, I'm like, that's all goals have been achieved. I mean, it'd be cool. Like, I would definitely be, I would be confused <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> They're like, uh, a little bewildered. Yeah. That was neat, but I don't know what just happened. 
so Eli Wallach wore a silk shirt and sported gold rings and teeth because he wanted to show what the bandit did with his loot. He also used a silver trim saddle that Marlon Brando had used in One-Eyed Jacks. Uh, do you know who can, do you know who, uh, you know, the score for this movie? It's not the, I was going to say Berlusconi. <laughs> That's no, a very no. different person. Uh, I don't know. I like it, it is Elmer. It is Elmer Bernstein's score. Okay. <laughs> John Williams was a member of the orchestra and he played piano. Uh, okay. It does have, well. Yeah, I like. I love the soundtracks for this era of Western too, where it's a bit of like the. Uh, oh, I always forget his fucking name. The fanfare for the common man guy. The. Uh, That's John Williams. No, it's it's Aaron Copeland. Aaron Copeland. Uh, Who did fanfare for the common man? Yeah, and a lot of like the oh, sort okay. of iconic, like going out west music is a lot of Aaron Copeland. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, I don't know. I just I love these soundtracks. And I we get the same thing that happened like in True Grit too, where there's just a few just like crazy, like gorgeous establishing shots that'll happen at various times. Ooh. So uh Brenner had a major problem with what he perceived as Steve McQueen trying to upstage him. According to Eli Wallach from his biography, McQueen would do things when on set with Branner to draw attention to his character. Examples were when he was shaking of the shotgun shells and taking off his hat to check the sun during the hearse scene and leaning off the horse to dip his hat in the river when the seven crossed New Mexico. From Queen's perspective, he reportedly invented the shotgun shell shake uh, business when he saw Brenner trying to upstage him by elaborately lighting his cigar. Brenner was, suppo- was so supposedly worried about McQueen stealing the limelight that he hired an assistant to count the number of times McQueen touched his own hat when Brenner was speaking. This is the most diva shit I've ever heard. <laughs> this is insane. <laughs> Leading man energy, right? Uh, so, Steve McQueen. Like, you watch that fucking movie, like in that scene too, and I'm not like, oh man, he just dipped his hat in the river. Take that, you old printer. <laughs> that's, that's such deranged thinking. <laughs> But to find out that they were both like, yeah, I'm going to fucking stick yeah. it to him. I'm going to light my cigar all funny. <laughs> to be like, you fucking show me. I'll show you. I count like... the number of times you touch your forehead. This is absurd. Steve McQueen wanted to act in this film, but couldn't because he was scheduled to do the TV series for One and Dead or Alive. Uh, he crashed a car while he was out sick when he shot this film. Damn. Um... So Yul Brynner actually approached Walter Mirisch, who was the producer, with the film of doing a Western adaptation of Seven Samurai. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Uh, so uh, Eli Wallach, whenever he handles his gun, whenever he puts his gun back into his holster, he always looks down at it. This is because Wallach wasn't used to drawing the weapon and didn't want to look foolish by missing the hol- uh, holster while putting his gun back. Mm. Uh, the man who played Chico, Horst Borsch, or uh, Bo- yeah. Buckholes yeah, accidentally, yeah, he accidentally shot himself in the leg on set. Though his gun with loaded was blanks, the shot raised a welt. Mm, yep. James Coburn and Robert Vaughn, that's the characters of Britt and Lee, have only 11 and 16 lines in the entire film. 
Respectively, they were close friends for almost 50 years, and this is their only film together. Damn. That's wild. Lee, that's really wild for Lee, because, like, James Coburn is kind of, like, quiet and understated. Like, he mostly just takes naps after doing something cool. <laughs> yeah. like, Lee feels and... like he has a really big part in the movie for, I guess he's not around that much, but, like, for, like, he's the only one dealing with sort of, like, that psychological trauma, and he's also on the right. run. That's, that's interesting that he only has 10 lines. They managed to pack a lot into that guy. That's cool. They did. Now, here, here's some more diva shit for you, Alex. Okay. Steve McQueen tried to, uh, tried to draw attention from Yul Brynner by taking off his hat to shade his eyes as he looks around before they drive the hearse to the graveyard and bending down from his saddle to dip water in the hat when the crew crosses a stream. Finally, Brenner said to him, if you don't stop that, I'm going to take off my hat and then no one will look at you for the rest of the film. What is that? <laughs> I don't know. These people both... I can't find out anything about anything more about Steve McQueen's interpersonal interactions because I'm losing respect. <laughs> the horse that Yul Brenner was riding was Pie, the same one that James Stewart rode in all or most of his westerns, and it was found while researching Stewart's horse. Interesting. Uh, Yul Brenner was actually married on set, and the celebration used many of the same uh, same props as the fiesta scene. And Steve McQueen wore white to that wedding. <laughs> Interestingly enough, Alex, according to Robert Vaughn, Steve McQueen complained about the gun Yul Brenner was using in the film, which was a cult peacemaker with an ivory grip. You didn't notice it, McQueen said. It has a pearl handle. You shouldn't have a gun like that. It's too fancy. Nobody's going to look at anything else with that gun on the picture. McQueen also complained about the size of Brenner's horse, saying it was mostly the biggest. Vaughn, reply, uh, Vaughn replied that he, Vaughn, actually had the biggest horse. He said, I don't care about yours. It's Brenner's horse I'm worried about. This is absurd. This is so good. <laughs> Why, guys? You were all so cool in the movie. <laughs> Robert Vaughn Lee was the last surviving member of the Seven. He died on 11-11-16 at the age of 83. Damn. Yul Brenner was the only actor to reprise his role in Return of the Seven in 1966. I was curious about that because I had seen that there was a sequel and then I, <laughs> I saw that before I watched the movie. I got to the end I was like, wait, how are seven of these dudes coming back? <laughs> There's only three left. That's funny. Oh. One plus six new guys. <laughs> Steve McQueen, James Coburn, and Charles Bronson appeared all together in John Sturgis's next film, The Great Escape. The film had just released in Germany while the next film was shooting, and it was a big hit, so they were besieged by autograph hunters. The cool. film was initially a box office failure in the U.S., but went on to be a smash hit in Europe and ultimately turned a profit. Newspapers caught wind of the tensions between Brenner and McQueen. Brenner <laughs> issued a statement saying, I never feud with actors, I feud with studios. Okay, which is clearly not true, <laughs> right? Like, it says man currently feuding with actors. <laughs> <laughs> the theme song was used for many years for Marlboro cigarette commercials. Mm, nice. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, so those are some of the, the fun facts. The Magnificent Seven, defend Flavortown. <laughs> <laughs> Town. 
despite all of that, I still think Steve McQueen is cool. He's cool in the movies for sure. Yeah, I just am gonna have to not hear about any of his weird. Uh... <laughs> well, oddly enough, this is the only time it cropped up. I've never okay. heard this behavior from him from any of his other films. I haven't. Yeah, I haven't tried to look into it, but I'm gonna ooh, stay away. I guess. I want to find out who he was fighting with in the Thomas Crown affair. <laughs> Um, so Magnificent Seven, we're a little western town, we got a little border town going on. Um, the Magnificent Seven is probably one of the most iconic western films. I'd put it up there with like A River Runs Through It, or My Darling Clementine, or Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Like, had you heard of Magnificent? Like, what was your experience with the movie before you walked in and uh, sat down with it? You I, know? Guess, I think I, like, well, I definitely knew it existed. <laughs> no, that's a weird thing to say, but I had talked about it at the Tracy High Film Studies class, at least. And I think we may have watched parts of it, if not all of it. Um, but I don't remember. If so. We watched in that class, it would have been on, like, a CRT at the front of the classroom that I. I was like probably couldn't be right. So now, when it comes to Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven, did they live up to the hype? I think they do. I think both of them do. the The '60s one here, and then I mean Seven Samurai for sure does. But this was, I think, if you like Western movies at all, like I go around. I feel like the only way you wouldn't like this movie is if you just like hate westerns. Um, but it's. Because otherwise, it's just like just a ton of fun. Do you have a standout seven that you like? Oh, um, probably. Oh, I'm trying to think to what they actually did in the movie now, because it's like it feels like pretty obvious. I mean, one of the very close for Yul Brenner, Steve McQueen, and uh, James Coburn in this. Charles Bronson, I'm less hot on. I do like, is he the one that gets uh, followed around by the kids in this? That's Yeah. Funny. Yeah. I do really, I that interaction is hilarious to me. Like, right before they're about to fight, and those kids showing up, telling him, like, if you die, we're going to take turns putting oh, flowers on your yeah. grave. <laughs> <laughs> and then he does, and they do. Ooh. I'm like he corrects them too when they're like our dads are cowards and like he fucking like he almost like he almost like spanks them or hits them he's like your dads aren't like do you know what they're doing every ounce of everything they're doing here to keep you alive to keep like this like that's that's not cowardice that's bravery those men are more brave than I ever could be yeah I like the uh villagers in this one are really fun I like the little parade kind of thing they have uh Sure. When things are going well. That's nice. Just just in general. I, I like the whole thing. I, I'd probably go Steve McQueen because I like him a lot. What, a, what about you? Is it Borscht? Is that your guy? Uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, I, I, Brit, like, the knife skills, like, the... Oh, yeah, James Coburn. Yeah, like, oh, yeah like James, James Coburn. Like. That he switches to knife-throwing mode twice in this movie and totally assassins the guy. That's right. It's just like... Faster than a gun. Oh, he's cool. Yeah! That seems brutal, yeah. 
like that intro with him sleeping by a fence post and he gets in a little duel thing. <laughs> Kills that guy. He's a brick one. Gets what? Brick one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Picks up his saddle like, and his moseys. Uh, um, I, I sat down and I watched Magnificent Seven and after it I'm like, fuck, that's a really cool western. Yeah, it was awesome. Like, it, it's, it's a really cool western. It's everything... It still it looks great. It looks so pristine and crisp. The acting of these guys is off the charts. I mean, Robert Vaughn, Brad Dexter, like he's such a fucking like opportunistic scout. Like, what are we doing this for? Gold, silver, money? Yeah, what, what's the actual score? Silver. Yeah, Harry's yeah, like just. They, I like how they turn that around at the end too. Like he's like bled. He's like bleeding out for this altruistic cause, and then yeah, you old brother being like, yeah, you were. You were right. There's a gold mine hidden back there. He's like, I fucking yeah. Know. It's like, and Eli Wallach is such a good villain. Yeah, he's really he really eats it up in the the couple of scenes that he shows up in. He's a lot of fun. And like when the moment comes when the seven have been kind of tricked into doubling back, and they're you know like guns up, get out of town. He's talking a whole lot of sense. He's like, you have no connection here. Men like you don't care. And that, like, when he talks to Yul Brenner toward, like, after the final showdown, he's like, a man like you, why'd you come back? Like, you were, you had nothing tying you here. And, like, he doesn't understand why these gut, like, why these hired guns would come back. Because they care. The good guys. And... Yeah, like, they, they, you know, they, they had a heart and they care. And Chico is getting like ties to the village and they're all kind of falling in love with it. And there's that moment too when Brent, when uh, Yule Brenner, when Chris, he's like, you know, I, I care about these people. And then Steve McQueen follows him inside and he's like, I just want to let you know you're not the only one who ended up caring. Yeah. Yeah. I was. Yeah. It's also yeah cool having all of these people just be on the same page for just like doing a good thing and then how quickly uh steve mcqueen like just throws in with yule brenner after just keep like well there's no pay but there's some, <laughs> there's some really nice all... people in danger yeah and oh, how they get charles bronson too and he's like they paid you 600 for that gig huh yep paid you 800 for that one yep well we're paying 20 yeah Oh, 20's a lot right now. <laughs> yeah, like, that's when he's, he's chopping wood to eat breakfast. Yeah. Like, $20 is a lot right now. And, I like, in that moment, that's such a human moment. Like, how many times have we taken a job or done something because it's like, fuck, I really need the 50 or I really need the 10. Like, I got bills to pay. I got to get some food. So right now, that's a whole lot of money because it's more than what I have, you know? Yeah. I think it just shows him just being like nice and good natured because he ends up being. This is not death notice, Charles Bronson, or no, it is it. Uh, death wish. wish, yeah, it is not death wish, Charles Bronson. He's like, it's not death wish, Charles. Bronson. He's pretty altruistic in this. He's having a good relationship with some strange children that uh <laughs> follow him around. He's he's a lot he's a lot nicer in this one. I like and then teaching them how to shoot and like building the village up and they're like it really yeah it's just cool it it looks awesome 
the acting, everyone in it is so cool and like yeah. oh. it really is a good, solid film. They they added some really cool like Western dialogue in here too. There's that thing where what is it? I think Calvera is like if God didn't want the sheep sheared, he wouldn't have made them so soft or something. Yeah, he's like robbing the villagers. Ooh. He's like if God if God didn't want them sheared, he wouldn't have made them sheep. Yeah, yeah. And it's like a line that is not delivered well in the 2016 one. Oh yeah, it's real bad. <laughs> a lot of things are not delivered well in the 2016 one. Uh, like um it, it's like i don't like yeah there, there's just something so cool about okay seven samurai is a cool movie but seven samurai is more like impressive it's more like yeah, it's like artistic or yeah, yeah it's like it's, like, it's, yeah. it's, it's cinema <laughs> right the magnificent seven is like it's cinema, but it's also a cool fucking movie. It's just like yeah, got cool characters, like a... cool actors. They all look cool. Like the fight, like the gun scenes and everything is awesome. I, I, I get it. Like I totally get it. And I, it's such a good remake. It's yeah, the perfect it really way to is. do it. It's a great adaptation for a different, uh, for a different region. And, and let's be honest, you're not gonna make a better version of Samur- of Seven Samurai than Seven Samurai. You're, yeah, you're not. Well, I, feel like, I feel like there's probably not. Well, I don't know. I'm sure there's some, maybe <laughs> some, uh, some American director who might think they can, maybe. But well, this is well, this is the thing, right? Like, this is why we got 2016 Magnificent Seven. This is why we keep getting other movies, but none of them are actually Seven Samurai. They're elements of Seven Samurai, or they're remakes, or they're adaptations, or they're retellings, but no one's ever been like, I'm gonna remake Seven Samurai. Even guys who you'd think would, like Quentin Tarantino, he touched Django Unchained, he did Inglorious Bastards. I don't see him taking on Seven Samurai. I don't see Eli Roth taking on Seven Samurai. I don't see Scorsese taking on Seven Samurai. Who's the dude who did the old boy remake? Is that Spike Lee? (laughs) <laughs> you think he might be the one. <laughs> but, uh, like, I, I think it's smart that make it a Western. Because you're not going to do a better version of Seven Samurai. So make change the formula. Been, yeah, and I don't want to see a bunch of, like... Don't you don't want to see I, Tom Cruise as the last no, Samurai? No, I just... Uh, a movie made in the 60s by a bunch of Westerners plus Yul Brenner and that German guy is probably not going <laughs> to be the best you know, samurai depiction on the planet. It would what be if weird. Steve, what, what if, but what if Steve McQueen was a samurai? Yeah, see, now, now I'm listening. <laughs> no, I actually think, I think he would be bad in that, too. <laughs> I think he would, too, but I, that's another thing, too. Like, Steve McQueen, he always, it seems like he picks the roles he knows are best for him. It would be hilarious to see Yul Brynner in a samurai <laughs> outfit, just with his flat <laughs> Russian accent that he doesn't attempt to change at all. His Cajun he's accent. Cajun. I'm sorry, he's a Cajun <laughs> accent. Yeah. yeah. Um. So okay. When when you can, do you think it's fair to compare Seven Samurai to Magnificent Seven? Like these two. Yeah. Yeah. I I do think it is because they're both really good. I don't. Well, by the time we get to the 2016 one, I think it's pretty far mm. removed. Like enough is really the <laughs> only kind of. 
Yeah. Aside from the number of people and the setup, it kind of doesn't feel like it has a lot in common. Well, it loses the themes. It loses like the themes and it loses the heart. What I wrote down, and I have not seen Expendables movies, but I was like, I think this is just the Expendables, but with cowboy hats. <laughs> uh, and with that, Alex, let's hop into 2016 and talk about 2016 Magnificent Seven. Um, yeah. Do you want fun facts first, or do you want to... Go sure. through your experience. Okay. Fun facts. My experience is mostly gripes, I think, that I wrote down. Uh, so, according to director uh, Antique Fawak, uh, Martin Sinsmere was cast as Red Harvest because he auditioned with luxuriant, almost knee-length hair, and when he's told that hair wasn't a selling point, he cut it soon after. Jeez. That's why they had the character of Red Harvest cut his hair into oh, a mohawk. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt were the first two that were cast. Um, Fakwa had knew both men had expressed interest in appearing in a Western. Getting Washington was easy, but initially the role of Pratt was uh, unsure. And the latter started saying that um, Pratt is Steve McQueen. Ooh, okay. That which is fucking a sin on like how dare you? How <laughs> dare even, you? I mean, even if like I don't know, even if Anton, I didn't feel like An- he, like as an actor, Chris Pratt was that cool. Like the characters are just like is like just so much worse in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's not he is not Steve McQueen. He's nowhere fucking near it. Um the director is uh, on uh, Atone Fakwa. I'm no, I'm butchering that too as well. Um, he worked in a training day. Yeah, um, that's pretty cool. But to say that Pratt is Steve McQueen is just a bombastic claim. It's it's he's supposed disgusting. To, he's supposed to play the same character, similar <laughs> <laughs> character, maybe. Uh, Chris Pratt rode the same horse that was used in War Horse. Uh. Uh, later in the film, Chris Pratt uses a shortened lever-action rifle. The unique firearm nicknamed the Mare's Leg was made popular by Steve McQueen in the series Wanted Dead or Alive, and Pratt's character is based on McQueen's character from Magnificent Seven. Uh, the cabin where Jack Horn lives is also featured in True Grit, when Cogburn kicks the Native Americans off the balcony. That's that same cabin? Uh, yeah. Cool. And they added racism into this <laughs> one, too. So there's like a lineage there. Uh, so when the studio executives met to review the actors, they were unhappy with all of the actors under studio consideration were white. Um, the director felt the audience would be able to identify with characters who came from a wide variety of backgrounds coming together for a common cause. Okay. This is Denzel Washington's first Western. Uh, some of the areas like Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where filming took place, had to be re-landscaped to resemble the Old West. Hmm. Uh, near the end, Ethan Hawke in the bell tower says to Billy Rocks, let me tell you something my daddy once said. Well, he said so many things, 
Bob Dylan said the same thing almost verbatim in his Grammy acceptance speech. <laughs> Ethan Hawke accent was, was kind of, it was all over the place. Uh, so from the moment Faraday gets on this horse and rides away, there are several musical beats from the original movie's theme song, but with different instruments. And only the first nine familiar beats, the entire theme song, sometimes called the Marlboro Commercial, is played during the end credits. James Horner only wore seven pieces, uh, only wrote seven pieces for the film. Um, although the film is not a straight remake of The Magnificent Seven, the characters have different names, but parallels can be drawn between them. Chris and Sam are both team leaders and both, uh, and uh, black cloths, guns for hire because Yul Brenner, uh, Yul Brenner wore black and Sam, uh, Denzel Washington wears black. Uh, Vin and Faraday are both broke gambling drifters. Lee was a sharpshooter suffering from PTSD, similar to Good Night. Britt is a lethal night fighter, same as Billy Rocks. Vasquez and Chico are both Mexican, though Chico was far less experienced. And Bernardo O'Reilly uh, looks like a Native American like Red Harvest. Harry is a large, imposing man, much like Jack Horn. <laughs> the fucking Jack Horn character. Vincent D'Onofrio, <laughs> who I really like most of the time, but this was just such a wild fucking, not a, not a fun way, just a really wild decision to make with that character. Uh, so $20 in 1880 would be $573 in today's uh, okay. money. Robert Vaughn died several weeks after this film's release. Ooh. This is the second movie Denzel Washington made based on the work of Akira Kurosawa. The first being uh, Seven Samurai with Magnificent Seven. Or that's the second. The first being Courage Under Fire, 1996, which was borrowed from Rashomon, 1950. Oh, interesting. I gotta watch Rashomon. You know. It's good. It's good. This is Chris yeah. Pratt's first ever Western. Ugh, yeah. Christian Bale was approached with a role, but turned it down. Was he gonna play the psychopath bad guy who else could he have been in this i don't know uh kevin costner morgan freeman and matt damon were all considered for parts okay uh tom cruise was also in talks to star in this okay tom sizemore was originally considered for the role of jack horn Hmm. i like tom sizemore uh when he's not on heroin i like tom sizemore sure so those are some of the fun facts for this Magnificent Seven. Okay. Uh, so what's the plot of this Magnificent Seven, Alex? In this one, there is a small town that is located kind of adjacent to this mining operation. And, uh, God, what are they? i got to look up this guy's name. And it, the, the, the mine is run by this... Uh, robber baron named bartholomew bogue who is played by peter skarsgård he was playing an absolute sociopath and he's doing kind of a john malkovich impression the whole time like (laughs) this character feels heavily inspired by cyrus the virus from con air to me um this is like one of the first scenes in the movie is like all the townsfolk are gathered in this fucking church and they're talking about what they can do because this dude's like taking over their town is going to run them out of their land and stuff. And then Peter Skarsgård and a bunch of goons show up and they kind of strong arm all these people out of the church and then burn the fucking church down and then murder a bunch of people in cold blood. <sighs> it starts out 
so much more intense, and the bad guy is so much more creepy and weird. Um, and then from there, we get two characters. This uh, Emma Cullen, whose husband had just been shot to death, and this other dude whose name I don't remember as much. Teddy uh, Q. Teddy Q, sure. And that's Luke Grimes and uh, Haley Bennett are yeah. their respectives. Haley Bennett, I really liked her, though. She was really good. Uh, I did, too. But so they, I think she's the strongest part of the film. I think so, too. She's an addition to the film and a good one, and I don't find her odious, which I can't say for all the other characters. Really? And then they don't... Well, I'm not saying that I hated all of the other characters, but there were enough in there where I was like, just Chris Pratt specifically. His character was unpleasant the entire time. But he's the world's greatest lover. Why did they... Okay. I... <laughs> Finish going through this and I'll get to my Chris Pratt problems. <laughs> but so, and then they go to hire samurai and they find, uh, or not samurai, <laughs> cowboys. Uh, and then also, so like, I think happening parallel to this or whatever, our intro to Denzel Washington, this guy Chisholm, uh, he is basically like a U.S. Marshal, kind of like Rooster Cogburn in True Grip. Um, and he's he is a warrant officer from the states yeah. of Wichita, Kansas, and he is allowed as a he is an elected peace officer. In, yeah, in the, yeah. So he's he is basically the leader a bounty of hunter in this. Like he, his intro is like him killing this bartender for cash, and then Chris Pratt like happens to be in the bar and kind of runs a little bit of subtle interference for him, and then I don't know. Then it kind of plays out largely the same. They find. The, the townsfolk find Denzel Washington. They kind of plead their case to him, and then he starts recruiting people. And then we got this cavalcade of weirdos um, and a couple of cool guys. So Ethan Hawke, good night, <laughs> Robichaux. <laughs> the, no what's, what's so funny about good night, Robichaux? It's just it's a funny name, and this dude, who should be Cajun, does not sound Cajun at all. It's just Ethan Hawke doing kind of a vaguely southern accent. There's Vincent <laughs> D'Onofrio, who plays this character, Jack Horn, who is like this wild, like this wild man trapper guy who also apparently made a lot of money, or maybe not made a lot of money, but he used to make his living killing Native Americans and scalping them. Um... And there's Billy Rooks, who is Goodnight Robichaux, sort of like right-hand dude. They've been running a scam where Billy Rooks does dueling, and then Ethan Hawke collects on it. I mean, Red Harvest. And, and, oh. and uh, Billy Billy Rocks is uh, Lee, Lee Byung-hun. Uh, he's a South Korean actor. Uh, he was in A Bittersweet Life. He's in The Good, the Bad, and the Weird. He was in I Saw the Devil. Masquerade, Mr. Sunshine, and Inside. The good, the bad, Along the is very fun, stuff. by the way. It is. Uh, yeah, and he's like the cool duelist knife fighter guy in this one. Um, Vasquez shows up. I don't remember what he... He was the outlaw that that uh, Denzel Washington is looking for. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he just tells him he won't like arrest him if he joins up. Um, and then mm-hmm. we meet Red Harvest with Martin Sensmeyer. Bella on um, en route to somewhere. Um, he is an exiled Comanche. 
because the elders told him he has a different path. Was different, yeah. Denzel's pass is also different. Um, yeah, I don't know. And, and they, they eat, the they eat deer liver. Yeah, and then they go, I don't know, then they all make their way back to the village and they fortify it and Chris Pratt berates people for no reason. And so they do the standoff thing. Alright, so what's your problem with Chris Pratt? Walk me through the seven and your problems with them. Okay, well not all of them. I think most of them are fine. They're just kind of like poor imitations of I don't think I don't like any of them as much as like any of their sort of respective characters from the 60s one. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. The two that get, the th- there are three that get close. Um, is it Robichaux? <laughs> is one of and them? I, I really like Ethan Hawke as Goodnight Robichaux. Yeah. Uh, I like Denzel as Sam Chisholm, and I really like Billy Rocks. But compared to their counterparts, I'd say, uh, I'd say those like, three are like the least. Yeah, those are like definitely like the least bad slash best ones. Like Billy Rocks, genuinely very cool. And Ethan Hawke, Good Night Robichaux, the character I, I do like. Um, I would want to see like a Christopher Nolan western about Good Night Robichaux, <laughs> sure. like or him like dealing like with like the fallout. Or... Yeah, or no, like him like living now, like after like before the Seven show up or whatever, like him being like washed out, him having PTSD, him like having these like like a real character like breakdown of that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like a character study of Goodnight Robichaux. Like a disgraced war veteran or whatever. Or like a famed warrior veteran. Yeah, so... But my problems with Chris Pratt, and they're, motor, they're about the character. Well, it's the character in conjunction with the character being played by Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt, generally the vibe I get, he's supposed to be kind of like a likable, goofy dude, even when he's doing action stuff, like in the Jurassic Park movies or whatever, right? He's like... Sure. At least supposed to be like kind of affable, even if he's a bit of a dick, but like he's a, you know, he's supposed to be an asshole in the way that like Indiana Jones is occasionally an asshole to be like lovable rogue. Right. Or like his Star Lord character. Yeah. Like lovable rogue. Um, like, but in this, he's just an antagonistic racist dickhole the entire time. Like, he, there's a few, there's a few scenes where he's fine, but he's like, he's like taunting, he like does a, series of like racist taunts at various people whenever they run into like any kind of minority he is like just super antagonistic and shitty to Haley Bennett all the time and it's like I get it's played like him it's like he just read the game or something he's like trying to meg her into into being into him um he calls it the war of northern aggression which he does a bizarre addition to me because that's a term that didn't exist until the 1950s so they just threw that in there to let you know this dude sympathizes with the south in ways that you might understand today i don't (laughs) yeah no it's true and he never really there's that really like a redemption he kind of just like stays being a dick to everyone around him he he does have a kind of a cool death at the end i will We'll give it up for that. But otherwise, he's just like really unpleasant the entire time. And I was like, this is. He's good at close up magic. Oh, yeah. I had that in there as a negative, too. (laughs) Big red flag. (laughs) Big red flag. (laughs) Um, Uh, Look, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I will never take Chris Pratt seriously. He's always going to be Andy Dwyer to me. 
And yeah. when he's doing an action movie, he's just Burt Macklin. Maybe, yeah. I mean, in this, at least, I don't know. He's like a lot more unpleasant than Burt Macklin in this. I'm not, I, I don't buy him seriously. I don't buy him as Star-Lord. I don't buy him in Jurassic Park. I don't buy him in The Magnificent Seven. I do not take Chris Pratt seriously outside of that character. Yeah, I don't have that same problem with him necessarily. I just like really, really did not enjoy his character in this movie. Um, what do you think of Denzel? I thought he was fine. Pretty good. Like, there. It seemed like there were a lot more like sort of solo performances in this movie, I guess. Cause Denzel really The vibes in this posse seem really toxic and bad to me at various points. Like I don't I think I would feel uncomfortable hanging out with them. <laughs> See, the problem is is that Denzel is such a good actor. I like him in any role he's in. Yeah, he's definitely good. It's like you're like he's Denzel Washington just playing sort of Denzel Washington being cool in a thing. And he's really a good actor. Um, but it doesn't really Mom feel man. like that special of like a cowboy character, I guess. I don't know. Sure. And and by now, like it's 2016. So we already have like modern Westerns, which is a problem for me anyway. I don't think modern Western movies are ever really that good, despite how good they may be. I think the 60s and 70s will always do better Westerns. But I think that Denzel Washington did pretty fucking good for a modern Western film. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone, assuming none of these people wrote their own characters, I think they all did the best they could with what they had. The Vincent D'Onofrio character is just fucking insane to watch. Like, he's a mixture of, like, insane on screen, but then also, it seems like he's acting in a different movie at points. Like, the responses that he has it just seem like totally random. Like he got cut in from something else about the like French Canadian trapper. <laughs> you don't like the Jack Horn character? It was just insane to me. I sort of like, I don't know. He's got that wild fucking accent the whole time. That is, it's not even French Canadian. It's just like a really eccentric accent. Oh, that Lord. He picked up for himself. Yeah. And then he's doing like the <laughs> random Bible quotes all the time. They had like these men here jumped me, hit me with a rock on my head. Yeah, <laughs> there's there's a few points in this movie where it feels very like paint by numbers. So like having Vincent D'Onofrio doing the though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, oh, right. where he murders like seven people. I'm like, okay, I've seen this in like five other fucking movies at this point, right? At least, and they were better movies a lot of the time. I don't know. So there was. It's it's a shame to see such because I like all of these actors minus Chris Pratt, um, but it's so like they need to be in a better movie, right? Yeah, this is just not like, that good of a movie. <laughs> like, like a pretty mediocre western. I get. I don't know. What'd you think of Ethan Hawke? Are you an Ethan Hawke fan? I do like Ethan Hawke. Yeah, ever since reality. How'd Bites, you feel? Or um, I like him. He's kind of a fun. <laughs> character this is like why it this is why it felt like the expendables or again i haven't seen the expendables but like everyone's got to have like an eccentric thing about them too like denzel washington is kind of a straight man and so is chris pratt but then like everyone else is like they got some is chris pratt a straight man he's he's fucking trying to like antagonistic asshole but he's not he's trying to give himself a title constantly just close-up magic 
Yeah, I guess the <laughs> close-up magic is his eccentricity. Like, everyone else is kind of like a... I don't know. I think that the characters maybe got a little overwrought or something. I do like Ethan Hawke, though. Him and uh, Billy Rocks, like, their partnership is very fun to watch. They're cool. Yeah. Um, and you can tell, though, like, cutting room floor, there's an entire section, I'm guaranteed, of Goodnight Robichet explaining the owl. What was the owl? Sorry, it's been a while. It's before he leaves, when he's talking to Billy, he's like, the owl, it followed me here. And Billy's like, nothing followed you here, it's just dreams. He goes, no, if I touch that trigger again in violence, I'm going to die a ghastly death. Oh, yeah. There's got to be cutting room floor where, like, I'm almost guaranteed, like, (laughs) yeah, like, during their fight, during, like, his last fight in the army or some shit, I'm sure he had a dream or, like, an owl was hooting and he took it as, like, a bad omen or whatever, and that's why, like, yeah, I'm sure he did a little info dump and they cut it for time. Killed a kid or something and then an owl stared at him very intensely afterwards. Or some shit, yeah. Yeah, never, never, um, really, never really got picked up on. Um, what do you think about Vasquez? I am having trouble remembering a ton about it. I feel like I liked him. I think he was a cool He's dude. the one who keeps calling uh, Chris Pratt well. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I didn't write anything. I don't have any Vasquez-specific notes in my little running log of thoughts that I had while watching it. I don't know. I want I want a good night. I like the character. I I just I enjoyed Vasquez's like fuck it. It's gonna be one less outlaw like I'm either dying here or I'm getting another day out there like after this is done. Mm -hmm. And it also shows that like because you get the idea that okay if Denzel Washington is a peace hunter like a warrant officer, he's tracking down bad men. And we see Vasquez, like, he takes uh, Emma Cullen, like, Hallie Bennett, he takes her, like, ropes her, he makes a joke, he insinuates that he's gonna, like, rape her, and it's like, fuck, this guy's a scumbag. And as the movie goes on, it's like, oh, maybe he isn't a scumbag. Like, maybe, like, you know, maybe there's something else there about this character. And again, I think cutting room floor stuff, because a lot of that shit gets chopped out. Maybe, yeah. It's weird to think about. There might be like a longer cut of this movie with more explanation, but still, I don't think it would have helped me enjoy it. Do much more. What do you think about Red Harvest? Uh, I like he's like a cool badass character. He doesn't really have that much. There's like the initial interaction with him and Denzel, and then I think that it's like he doesn't really get featured that much until he's like chilling on the roofs of the siege of the town, right? Well, no, he fights Ken Hatote. Oh, yeah, at, in the Siege of the Town, also. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jonathan Joss. Was that the same guy? That's funny. Yeah, Jonathan Joss is uh, Mr. Denali, who is an exiled Comanche war- uh, warrior who works for uh, Bartholomew Boak. And, uh, yeah, like, he, uh, he is also the one who kills Jack Horn. Right, right. That felt that felt good to me. Um, Ouch! Really? Well, because they had that line. The arrows. No, when they meet Jack Horn, like they ask him if he's still making his money turning in like Native American scalps. Oh, right. 
I was like, all right, good for you, Mr. Denali. There's so many arrows. <laughs> also... It's so overwrought. It's so. <laughs> he shoots him in the leg. He yeah. shoots him in the arm. He shoots him, or he shoots him in the shoulder, the chest, the leg, and the hand. And there's like a little, yeah. And they're not like rapid fire. There's like a you see him no. start to get up or like make a movement or something, and then it's arrow, arrow, arrow. Um, and then he fights Red Harvest, and Red Harvest wins. And that is a brutal looking knife fight. Like it's it's over so fucking quick though, right? Like Red Harvest, just I know, trounces <laughs> this dude. No, no problem. Then he kicks him off the balcony through a table. Yeah, that was pretty cool. It's like, oh my god, he's broken in half. That was a fun. That was a fun little scene. I thought the uh, <laughs> and a few parts of during the siege, like when Ethan Hawke comes back valiantly. Um, that part's cool when he starts. He like shows up. Tell him about the devil's dead. breath. But they got scene, the devil's that scene breath. With the devil's breath. The slash Gatling. The Gatling gun. gun. There's like it's like, it feels like five minutes. Ethan Hawke. There's just scenes of Ethan Hawke running around in his horse, yelling, "They got the devil's breath." They got <laughs> the Gatling gun. Gatling gun. Yeah. <laughs> Goddamn Gatling gun. It does seem a little long, and because the entire time, like, they're they are just like rolling off shots, and he does not get hit by that that isn't, time. Is there also there's like a there's a countdown that happens when they're about to set up some TNT that just goes on for say five seconds <laughs> way too long. It's like a, yeah, it takes like a minute to get through that count. It's so long. So, so painfully long. <laughs> yeah. Like they claim. So the Gatling gun, the, the devil's breath, uh, the one they were using, by 1866, the gun was capable of firing more than 400 rounds per minute. Yeah. I mean, swagged up. Pretty, pretty nuts. Uh, I'm not saying it wouldn't be brutal. I just thought in the, <laughs> the context of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's, it is crazy that that scene happened. And the countdown you're talking about, I also thought that too. When they're... When the first siege comes up and Billy Rox and Jack Horn are the first line of defense and they have their men hidden in the trench and they're holding uh, plungers for TNT. Yeah. And and Jack Horn, Vincent D'Onofrio, is like, all right, I'm going to count. Five! Cut to raiders, like, running down on the thing. Cut to someone else doing something. Cut back to Jack Horn. Four! Cut back to more raiders running through the field. Yeah, it lasts I'm By like, the time he gets five, to three, four, I'm already three, like, this two. has gone on too long. This is too long. We have to do three more of yeah. these? Oh, no. I'm like, how long is that field exactly? Like, they don't even show them counting in unison or whatever. They cut. They make it seem like, oh, so we're taking like 10 seconds here. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's seconds, a long like, five-second uh, count, and then it's a drawn-out five-second count. Yeah. it's It was excruciating. <laughs> uh, how do you feel okay so Denzel, Sam Chisholm he finally shows down with Bartholomew and oh, drags him in the church Yeah, I, I wrote a little and thing. it goes to choke him and it wants him to pray pray oh god <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> how do you feel about all that how do you feel about the, uh, the, uh, the showdown I like they kept the sheep shearing line. It's worse, but they kept it. Oh, it's worse. <laughs> I want to jump back real quick. Another line that I really like from the original. 
is when Yul Brenner is like, well, I've been offered a lot of things for my work, but never everything. And I was like, ooh. That's, yeah. keeps that line in this one, too. And it also just falls totally fucking flat when it, delivered. It, <laughs> yep, it does. It really does. Through no fault of Denzel's. Like, I got chills in the 60s one, and this one I was just like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um. I don't know. I wrote down, I was like, I think the industrialist killed Denzel's sister, question mark. And then I was like, it's way worse. Yeesh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. The scene was rough. At the and then Halen Bennett saves him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. With that fucking, that crack shot from like outside the horse, from outside the, yeah. the chapel. It was pretty cool. I want to see a movie with her too, like just being just like a her. solo, yeah. like just just like a solo Western badass chick. Yeah, yeah. Like she defending cool. her homestead, she was really good because she, she awesome. like when 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 Robichet leaves, she's like, "I'll take his place," and she's not as good of a shot, but she's also definitely still shooting people. And she's also a very good shot. Like, I mean, compared to all the right. other yokels in this fucking town. That, right, she's not a good night Robichet shot, but she's definitely hitting her targets. And she's good enough to shoot that dude in the head from pretty far away while shooting, like, past Denzel Washington. So, you know. Yeah. Like, and... and I love that she it, yeah. never acquiesces to Chris Pratt's bullshit at any point. Or I am, he, too. He blows up in that suicide bombing before there's a chance for that to play out. Yeah. Because, you know, she lost her husband. Her husband was the one standing up. So she's she you know stands up next you know, um, in both of these movies and in Seven Samurai, how do you feel? Do you think any samurai should have died to make it better, or do you like? Do you think any of their places should have been swapped? Are there any characters you think, think should have died or who should have lived, and it would have been more impactful? Oh, I don't. I think I'm all right with the way it sort of works out in all of these. I mean, I don't care as much about who dies in this one because I, by the end of it, I was just like, okay, let's, let's move this along, please. Um, I feel like it would have been better if Sam Chisholm died at the end. You think so? I mean, it wouldn't really be in keeping with like the, that would be a big, a big divert or a big departure, I guess, because the, the organizing like main guy lives in all of them. Right. But I, I feel like this, it would have been a bigger, I think it would have been a bittersweet ending, which is what all the uh, like the other two were. The I other think, two were bittersweet endings. I think maybe, maybe you're saying that because like, well, not all the death, but like Chris Pratt dying, like who gives a shit? But like Steve McQueen dying, that sucks. Right. Um, you know, like Steve McQueen, like if like if Steve because Steve McQueen didn't die, or yeah, the people that okay, who I don't know. I like Charles like, Bronson. Charles he stands Bronson. up to help. Like he stands up to help the kids to shield them, and that's when oh, he dies. Steve McQueen just got shot a little bit, right? Like in the gut. Or something. Brick dies because he thinks it's over, and he break or he runs out of ammo, so he stands up to throw his knife, yeah. and he just he gets shot like that, and his knife falls into the rock and stuff. Um, Good night, Robichet and Billy Rocks are eaten up by the <laughs> yeah, <machine laughs> by the Gatling They just gun. get their asses lit the fuck up by that thing. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and Chris Pratt blows himself up to take out the Gatling gun, and Jack Horn is arrowed to death. Uh, <laughs> that leaves yeah. like Vasquez, Red Harvest, and I want a Red Harvest movie too. Um, Chisholm, right? 
and Chisholm are the three walking away, but it doesn't have a bittersweet ending. Seven Samurai had a bittersweet ending. Uh, Magnificent Seven had a bittersweet ending. This one doesn't. And I also feel like it doesn't because the stakes are so much lower in this one. Because it's like the town, oh, we're going to lose everything. But if the town win, they have a fucking gold mine now that they can access. Yeah, maybe. I, I feel like it would have. I feel like the ending would have been more impactful if I cared about the characters at all by the time we got there. Largely did not. Mm-hmm. Like, even the ones that I liked, I wasn't really, like, invested in whatever was going on with them in the movie. And it does... That's another thing. How, how do you feel about the stakes of this, too? They're kind of all over the place, right? Because, like, the bad guy is, like, way more of a fucking psychopath, like, ruthless weirdo. Um, and it's just, just like, just going to straight up kill everyone in town. Uh, but then having it be about, like, yeah, just this mind, like, ultimately these people have to like move or whatever, I guess would be like the, the worst outcome for, well, I mean, they could all be murdered, but they could just elect to not live there, I suppose, which right. And they're even like, their land's getting sold from them for $20 a parcel, but that's still better than getting outright killed. Like they can leave. They might even get the 20 bucks. That's still something. Yeah. It's not like in seven samurai or, uh, Magnificent Seven, where they're starving to death. Yeah, and I uh, like get well. It's not like yeah, and it's not like it's their like ancestral home either. But you know, um, they're like they're. I don't know. This is gonna sound like a landed acknowledgement, but they're you know probably on stolen land, getting displaced sure. by a shittier like white dude. So, I don't know. I just don't care and, and, about like the mine thing either. I guess like the the workers yeah. would be abused if they had focused more on that, or like if the fucking villagers were all being forced to work in the mine. But like the miners are just like another group of people separate to the town. They show up to help the town later, but they're like I guess none of them were townsfolk. They're just a bunch of right, dudes. which is weird. They're townsfolk when they go to the brothel. I guess is the only part. Right, <laughs> and like. Yeah, because now the, the assumption is now this town is left without ingress from it, like outside forces, and they have a fully functional gold mine. Yeah, maybe. So now maybe. they can just go in there and start mining out the gold. They can also now hypothetically march into the bank where Bartholomew was keeping all of his gold and maybe just spirit some of that away. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I just, yeah, I didn't really care too much. The whole, like... Yeah, the, the stakes seem... And it's such a shame because, like, again, Ethan Hawke, Denzel Washington, Vincent D'Onofrio, Peter Skarsgård, Haley Bennett, they need to be in a better movie. Yeah. Like, they were... Like, I don't know. The sort of... The, the town being under threat was seemed, like, sort of secondary to, like, the super villaininess of the Bogue guy. Like, the main thing was just, like, this dude's a fucking psycho and we got to do something right. about him. It, like saving the village seemed maybe not like the first, I don't know. I don't know. I just didn't, I just didn't really care as much about sort of anyone while this was going down. Yeah. Now, uh, Magnificent Seven was talked about in 2012 and Tom Cruise, Kevin Costner, Morgan Freeman, and Matt Damon were all in talks. Mm. None of that went through. Um, how much do you think 
uh, this movie cost to make? Uh, probably a shitload. I don't know. I don't. 2016, like a hundred million dollars, maybe. Ninety million to one hundred and seven million. Ooh, okay. What do you think the box office take was? I think it was a lot because of the stacked ass cast. It was like probably like two or three times that. So. One hundred and sixty-two million. Oh, okay. So it made money. Barely made its though. budget back. Yeah, it made money, but not a crazy amount. That feels nice, actually. I think that's fine. That's fine. So, uh, it was nominated for the uh, Black Reel Awards for Outstanding Actor, Outstanding Director. Uh, they were both nominated. Hmm. None of them won. Uh, the Jupiter Awards. Anton The Jupiter Awards had Best International Film and Best International Actor. Uh, it was nominated for Best International Film, just nominated. Denzel Washington won the Best International Actor, though. Hmm. Those are the Jupiter Awards. The Saturn Awards had Best Action or Adventure Film, just nominated. And then the Teen Choice Awards, Chris Pratt was just nominated. Just because it's the category, <laughs> The category, well, it's the Teen Choice Awards, and yeah. the Choice Movie Actor was the Anticipate, uh, Anticipated Category. Ugh, what what does that even mean? It's I mean, like anticipated, but anticipated. No, I, yeah. I understand the pun that's being made. I just don't know what, <laughs> what possible kind of a, like what's okay. I don't. It's the Teen We're Choice Awards, really. So like, like, I can't wait to see Chris Pratt do a worse in... version of the Steve McQueen role. <laughs> Way before I was born. I it really is a worse version of Steve McQueen, like. It's a bad Steve McQueen impersonation. Poor. Poor, I would say. He's just being a dick. It's kind of like the way that Pierce Brosnan was in the... Uh... <laughs> in the Thomas Crown of Everybody. Just, just more. Um, not, not enough cool. Yeah. So, uh... Yeah. Vincent D'Onofrio was cast as Mountain Man Jack Horn at the urging of Chris Pratt and Ethan Hawke. For the role, <laughs> D'Onofrio developed a raw, high-pitched voice to give him the impression of a man who had lived in the wilderness for years without speaking to people. That's what? Okay. Jesus Christ. When, when, it, when he asked to voice for Farouk, the director refused to listen, instructing the actor to surprise him within his first scene, which resulted in Farouk laughing so hard that he almost ruined the take. Bad call, bud. Bad call. This was... <laughs> <laughs> Martin size, uh, Sinsmore, uh, Sinsmere auditioned several times to land the role of Red Harvest, a native Comanche warrior. He stayed off of social media and studied intently to portray the part. Scotty argue, uh, Aguirre, who previously worked on Dances with Wolves, taught him how to ride horseback and rode with him two days. Hmm. Or two hours a day, sorry. That's cool. Um... Manuel Garcia Ruffalo, who described his character Vasquez as a bandit on the run from the law as someone who loves gunfighting. Yeah. Um, yeah. All in all, when it comes to Magnificent Seven, did you enjoy it? Not, not really. 
I mean, not after watching the original one. This was. Now, here's the $64,000 question, Alex. When it comes to Seven Samurai slash The Magnificent Seven, reboot or deboot? I don't. I don't know. They have like two amazing movies. I don't think really there's much that can be much of anything that can be do, done to like improve either of them. I think they just mm-hmm. need to stay that way. No more. <laughs> God. I really hope that like 10 years from now, there isn't another gang of people who are like, <laughs> we could all be seven cool guys. Uh, Zach Efron, Channing Tatum, yeah. Jonah Hill. I might, I might watch that. Actually. <laughs> Comedy. Uh, so I'm actually going to go the opposite way and say reboot because I think if done right, this concept could be a great vehicle for older actors and new blood. This is just the Expendables or what's the one with Bruce Willis? Is that red? Red. Yeah. Where they're old guys doing acting stuff. Well, but you could also like, you could stack the, like, okay, you have a few, like have the older actors in there and have them be like the Twilight gunslingers. Maybe they're a little, uh, this is their final push. Or you have the newer guys trying to prove themselves. So you take like an, unnew, like an unknown actor or a newer actor. I think it's a great blend. And because it's such a open concept of we're going to take a small group of people to hire some professional hitmen or to hire some professional talent to protect our interest of life. Like, I think that's such an open concept. There's a lot of room to play with it. I don't think name it Magnificent Seven, though. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and, I have a thing that I wrote down from the end of this, too, because they literally, is it Sam Chisholm that says it? Someone says it, or in voiceover. No, it's like, Haley. It's Haley, Haley Bennett. It was magnificent. Yeah. I wrote that down, they just wrote, boo. She, yeah, really... she said, her, her final voiceover was like, it was the sacrifice that made these men magnificent. It was magnificent, yeah. I was like, that sucks. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no. It's like you don't say the quiet part out loud, lady. Like I hate it whenever that happens. It's not her fault. She didn't write that voiceover. It's but not. It I know. Like, it's so fucking hacky and bad. Um, it's like we know what you're doing, and you don't need to like. Yeah, we know what movie we're watching. We haven't forgotten. Yeah, it truly was the Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> It's what made this story Pulp Fiction. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot to... There are a lot of moving pieces with Magnificent Seven, especially with Seven Samurai. And you can take... I mean, 13 Assassins is literally... All of the parts are found in Seven Samurai. You could, like, uh, Magnificent Seven, just take it, revamp it, change the ethnicities, change the people, but keep the core concept. And I think it's a great vehicle for, like, new actors and older actors. I think that's the perfect vehicle. Hmm. I guess just, sure, if the characters are better, it could be good. Yeah. yeah. And don't try to be so on the nose with it. You don't need to, like, we. you don't need a sociopathic villain. You just need... Because also in Seven Samurai, and more so in Magnificent Seven, the bandit leader doesn't have enough food on his own to feed his people, so they're stealing food. Yeah, and they're like, that's they don't really talk about, or I guess they do talk about it in the remake of it, but they go and they're like, they're starving and getting ready to break ranks, like, before the last siege, anyway. 
Right. Um, like you don't need to have like it's a gold mine and he's running off of our land. We've done that before. There's that so many modern westerns and even old westerns where a greedy businessman, a robber baron, is coming in to buy people out of their land. We've seen that a million fucking times. I think there's just like a lot of personalities that were too big. Like there were too many people who felt like they were the main character for this to be like a decent ensemble movie. You just kind of like. You got to be cool, like Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen, and be the I best of friends, it. like yeah. Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen. Fight about <laughs> how many times you touch your hats offset, but leads to a good movie. Um, do you have any? Uh, do you have any final things you want to say? Anything you think we glossed over or missed? I would say that if someone touches their hat and you think that's a personal attack, you need to reevaluate some things in your. In your life, just a sort of general <laughs> advice. Um, and on that note, we will see you next week. That podcast is filling your head with garbage. You should be in school. Well, we better get going. I wonder, will we ever see each other again? Who knows? God willing, we'll all meet again in Spaceballs too to search for more money.